0: Hey folks, welcome back to the Brown Surgery Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kenneth Lynch. First of all, I want to say Happy New Year to everyone, and second, I want to thank you for continuing to support these episodes. Today's episode is really geared towards medical students and junior residents as we discuss indications for chest tube placement. We'll also look at types of chest tubes as well as a quick review of the three-chamber chest tube collection system that can get a little daunting for new clinicians. Joining me to discuss this topic is our current surgical critical care fellow, Dr. Jennifer Hubbard. Jenny did her undergraduate work at UMass Amherst, and then went on to medical school at Ross University before doing a general surgery residency at St. Mary's Hospital in Waterbury, Connecticut. She is now halfway through her critical care fellowship here at Brown, and we are excited to have her on the podcast today. I'd like to welcome Dr. Jennifer Hubbard to the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having me here, Kenny. It's always fun to hang out with you.
0: You know, Jennifer, we've chatted a little bit about this topic. I think when you mentioned potentially doing a podcast on chest tubes, I was excited for it because (laughs) I talk a lot with particularly the third year clerkship students about indications for chest tubes um, and the different types of chest tubes. and I think there's still some misconceptions or a misunderstanding of like just the proper management for a patient who gets a, a chest tube and what to be looking for, and even to report out to your team in the morning on indications for it.
1: Yeah, I think as a student, rounding on someone with a chest tube can be very terrifying at first.
0: Jumping into it, I think when you talk about putting a chest tube into a patient. What are some of the indications that you look for?
1: So I think hemo-pneumothorax would be the best thing for us to talk about. Let's start with the pneumothorax. You start with your ABCs, so you do your airway secure that. Once you get to breathing, if you have a patient that has a decreased breast sound in their hemithorax, You wanna think pneumothorax and trauma. This isn't the patient that you wanna start thinking maybe they have a pneumonia because this can be a very life-threatening condition. So once you've identified that you have decreased breast sounds and you're afraid you have a pneumothorax, the next set in your algorithm is, am I hemodynamically stable or unstable? The reason that you wanna decide that is it does take quite a while to set up placement of a chest tube and dissect through the chest wall, especially in obese patients. So if you have a patient who's unstable, you then wanna think that they have a tension pneumothorax. So every time they breathe in and they have that rent in the lung, you have air kind of collecting in your thorax and it's causing a mediastinal shift and instability. So in that case, it's probably better to needle decompress beforehand and that gives you time to set up and place your chest tube.
0: I know this is a topic too that comes out. Someone says, I want a needle decompress. I'm like, great, where do you want a needle decompress?
1: Exactly, yes. So I have done the shift for now. I go second intercostal sace mid axillary line because I do think that is the closest to the chest wall, especially when we have different body habitus and people. I also think it's still acceptable to do second intercostal sace mid clavicular. The point is, is the biggest longest needle that you can find and you want to go very far in. And just remember that once you needle decompress, you're sort of committed to that chest tube placement. And then hemothorax, I think there's two very important reasons for why you put a chest tube in for hemothorax. First is obviously they have a hemothorax that you wanna decompress, but this has um, an additional value of being very diagnostic. So if you have a patient that puts out more than 1.5 liters on your chest tube insertion, or more than 250 cc's an hour for three or more consecutive hours, then traditionally that patient has to go to the operating room because they have an active ongoing bleed. And that's usually from an intercostal artery. I do wanna say that these are numbers that you see in books and you really have to take some clinical judgment into account. You know, if you had a patient that put out 450 cc's in the first hour and then put out 350 cc's in the next hour, and then 300 in the hour after that, that's a patient who has a decrease in bleeding, and that may be the person that you want to wait and watch for another hour before deciding to take them to the operating room. So there's a lot more that is involved in that discussion, um, but those are sort of guideline numbers to have in place.
0: That's a great point. Just because we are talking about Using a trauma situation here for a chest tube, a lot of times you listen to breath sounds as part of B. You hear diminished breath sounds on the left, particularly from yeah. students who haven't really gone through ATLS yet. They want to get some type of X-ray or yeah. a point of care ultrasound <laughs> it's just because they don't feel that confident in their yeah, physical yeah. exam. But the point we need to drive home here is your physical exam is airway secure, Mm -hmm. your diminished breath sounds, it's gotta be a hemo or pneumothorax until proven otherwise. So you're gonna either needle decompress based on stability or put a chest tube in.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a great point. I think for people who are unsure too, you always wanna remember that you're not alone in a trauma bay, you have multiple people around you. I think one of the best advice I ever got from a trauma surgeon is you're never alone. So in that trauma bay, Hey, I have decreased breast sounds. If you are unsure, and sometimes it's loud and it's hard to hear, and you don't even know if you have decreased breast sounds, phone a friend, have someone, hey, can you listen? I think I heard decrease on this side, and go from there.
0: Awesome. So we're going to put a chest tube in. There's some differences between chest tubes, and we're not going to get into the size and the difference between French and gauge, which no. comes up a lot. <laughs> uh, but chest tubes are measured in French. There are two that our students, residents, uh, faculty come in contact with quite often. One's the pigtail catheter, Mm -hmm. and the other one's the standard Argyle chest tube that we place. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the two?
1: Yes. So the pigtail catheter is usually 14 French, and there's been a lot of literature studying and debate around what is the perfect size chest tube, right? You want to balance a chest tube that's going to drain a hemothorax, that's not going to get clotted, between patient comfort, you know, you want a big enough chest tube to drain everything, but you want a smaller chest tube so the patient is comfortable. And so the question is, what is the perfect size? And I don't think that that's well-defined yet. There's a lot of people who still use those large, bore 30, 32, some people use somewhere in the 20s, and some people are starting to use pigtails even for traumatic hemothoraxes. I think one of the better papers that I have read on this is there was a paper by Dr. Rhee um, who's up in New York now, but he wrote a paper called uh, What French Catheter Can Balance Comfort with the Ability to Drain a Hemothorax Appropriately Slash Not Clot. And I think we're going to start seeing a shift towards smaller French chest tubes with the idea being, I like the analogy of a drinking straw. You know, if you get a drink at a bar and you have those small little stirring straws that you can sip through, liquid will always go through a tube no matter how small the tube. So if the blood is still liquid, it'll come out. If it's clot, it's not gonna come out regardless of the French. And and that's not always true and that's not standard of care, but I at least think it opens our mind to discussing shifting into smaller French chest tubes.
0: Yeah, I think that's an awesome point, that you are going to get effective drainage, especially if it's a recent patient gets stabbed in the chest and was just brought to the ED. It's not They haven't been lying down somewhere for hours on end, and the blood hasn't had time to coagulate or clot.
1: And one thing I do want to say is, I know we're talking about this, and I think it's a very academic discussion, I still think in the trauma bay with this quasi-stable patient, plus or minus needle decompression with their hemodynamics instability, but then in that trauma bay, you're putting in a chest tube at that time. You're not putting in a pigtail at that time. So I think classic being classic, if you're in a trauma bay and you have a patient, they have decreased breast sounds, you're going to put a, a traditional chest tube in.
0: So where would you put your pigtail in?
1: Yeah, I think if this is the patient who is stable and you're CAT scanning them and you've already sort of done your primary secondary survey and you're getting additional imaging and you see a hemothorax that you think is large enough to drain, I think when you come back and you evaluate them, that's the time. That you could place a pigtail. But if you're in the trauma bay, you're just seeing this patient, you're securing an airway, they have decreased breast sounds, um, their hemodynamics aren't that great, you're, you're going to place a traditional chest tube. You're not going to wait to get imaging to see what you would place.
0: I think another situation too is think of the patient in an ICU environment or mm-hmm. something who maybe gets a pneumothorax inadvertently after a central line placement or something and they have a simple pneumothorax, they're stable, they don't have tension, another great scenario where you could easily put a pigtail catheter in and spare them a larger bore chest tube.
1: Yeah, I think that's perfect. I think a lot of literature too doesn't distinguish a trauma patient between a trauma patient in the trauma bay and a trauma patient in a critical care setting. And I think that is important, just as you alluded to, because they are at two separate points in their pathophysiology.
0: And I think it's important conceptually, you know, especially students to understand some of the differences between placement of a standard chest tube versus a pigtail catheter. And a lot of it comes down to you know, selling your technique or not. So do you wanna speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I think placement of a chest tube sometimes really is truly, truly emergent. But in general, you want this to be a sterile procedure with local anesthetic, it is quite painful. So what you want to do is first your landmarks so you want to identify the fifth intercostal space and a good cheat for this is that it's the inframammary fold in women and the level of the nipple in men. So when you are trying to identify your landmarks hit that level and then carry this out to be sort of mid-axillary and that's kind of your go-to point. So then you want to prep and drape and so when you're prepping you want to get familiar with your kit and always sort of have an idea of the kits that your trauma bay or ED has and be familiar with what's in them, what's missing, where everything is. When you're placing the chest tube is not the first time to be looking at a kit and where everything is and organizing yourself. Make sure you've also picked out the chest tube and you've put that on your field and appropriately clamped the drainage side. Then when you drape, you want to drape with your landmarks in place. So I really do try to get the nipple, especially in males, try to get the nipple in my fields. That way I have a reference point. And then once you've prepped and draped, you want to give anesthesia. And I think it's important to realize that you're not just anesthetizing the skin. That's really not the most painful part of this procedure. You're dissecting all the way down to the pleura. So you really want to anesthetize down to that level of the pleura, or else it's going to be very uncomfortable for your patient. And once you have anesthetized, what I like to do is when I have that needle and I am at the level of the rib that I'm happy with, just skyve right above that rib. And you want to insert the needle as you're aspirating on the syringe, and then you'll see bubbles or blood or whatever is in your chest cavity. And then you know, okay, that's where I'd be in the cavity, that's right above the rib, that's sort of where I'm aiming for when I do my dissection. And then You make your incision, you bluntly dissect down, and I think an important thing here is that you are going to enter the chest wall bluntly, but it's not with extreme force where you'd injure the lung. So so you want to enter with enough force to break the pleura, but then you have to stop yourself. You have to stop the momentum on that Kelly that you've used to enter and make sure you don't injure anything. And that's where they talk about sweeping and that's where that comes into place. So you want to sort of put your finger in and get an idea of what's around you because you don't want to go through the lung with the Kelly or your chest tube. The placement of the chest tube is very much by feel, right? So once you've entered the pleura and you've extended this space, You then wanna guide the chest tube in and that'll also have a Kelly sort of clipped to the stay side of the chest tube and it'll just peek out forward from the chest tube a little bit And you want to use that to guide your chest tube in. And then you want to slide your chest tube over this Kelly and put it in the thoracic cavity. And this again is by feel. You know, if you feel resistance, don't push. That's the lung and it's telling you that it doesn't want to go there. And then some people sort of talk about twisting the chest tube as you put it in so it doesn't end up in the fissure. Again, make sure the drainage side is clamped or you're just going to have blood all over your shoes. Uh, but once you are in the thoracic cavity, be mindful of how far in it is. You know, you don't want a chest tube that's 30 centimeters in. And that's important to recognize the body habitus too, right? Some people can have 6 centimeters of soft tissue. So if you put a chest tube in and these people at the same distance that you put in a thinner person it may be outside the actual hemithorax for that patient and compared to maybe a slimmer one so after you've asserted your placement you suture it and then you ask someone to hand you the tubing to the atrium you connect it and then a sterile dressing and then don't forget how important it is to tape this chest tube to the uh, atrium connection tubing, because that's one thing that we forget about is this patient probably has to be moved either to CAT scan or to the ICU, and you don't want to lose any seal of the system and cause this patient, you know, repeat pneumothorax.
0: And there's some great videos that we can link to this podcast on chest tube placement. Behind the Knife did a video series, and one of their uh, videos on chest tube placement was really well done, so I will put the link to that in this podcast. Um, I think another thing that I've heard a few attendees mention, and I use it myself, is you can always estimate from where your incision is to the sternal notch. You, know, you would not want to go beyond that depth to place the chest tube in, so you risk tanking the tube or not having it well placed. So how is this different than the pigtail catheter?
1: Yeah, so the pigtail catheter really is this, you know, hollow entry with guide wire and and chest tube that slides over the guide wire. That's Seldinger technique. So it is a very nice way to place a chest tube for patients because it is much less painful because it is a percutaneous entry in a smaller French chest tube. But again, this is probably more like we talked about, sort of an elective tube placement rather than the trauma chest tube. So placement is a little different. I actually like to do my pigtail catheters. If I'm doing this for, like we said, this pneumothorax and the patient in the ICU, you. i like to do that sort of second intercostal space midclavicular, and this is just again local infiltrate it is a less painful procedure but you always want to use local in your patients you're gaining entry with this hollow needle and then using a guide wire to enter the thoracic cavity and same thing we talked about seldinger technique so you are placing this pigtail catheter over the guide wire into the cavity. And there is a black line on most pigtail kits that'll tell you the depth in which you have to go in. And then once you release all the components uh, within this pigtail catheter, it'll curve in the chest cavity. And that's sort of why it's named pigtails. It's curved like the tail of a pig.
0: Yeah, and that's just so it doesn't injure surrounding structures when it's in place. Great. So we've placed a chest tube, whether it's a pigtail or a standard chest tube. I know what our practice is from a ACS trauma service, which sometimes differs from the thoracic service. But... I think the concept of when to place chest tubes to active suction or negative pressure or not, water seal, confuses folks sometimes. What can you say about the difference between water seal versus suction on a chest tube?
1: Yeah, I think that understanding the atrium is a little terrifying when you first start, but if you have a good understanding of what it does in the pressures in the thoracic cavity, I think it helps you with your decision-making. So the atrium, We always talk about how it has quote-unquote three separate chambers, and I think to understand it, it's good to start with just looking at pictures online of the actual three separate beakers, and how you can make your own atrium with three separate beakers, and then graduating up to reading about the actual atrium that is used in your institution, I think it's an oasis atrium here. The three chambers we talk about is first the collection chamber, and that's when you see the sort of three columns of blood by the patient's bedside when you're looking at the atrium. That's just to collect and quantify any fluid that comes out of the thoracic cavity. And then any air that's entering through this collection chamber goes down a very narrow tubing and enters the second chamber, which is the water seal chamber and this is really nice because the property of the water acts as a one-way valve so once air escapes through it it can't go back in. It's nice on our atriums because they also measure the pressure in the thoracic cavity in this same chamber so you'll sort of see 5, 10, 15, you'll see numbers in the same column which is telling you intrathoracic pressure and we can talk about that in a little bit. And then also just past this one-way valve, you'll see sort of a grating system, one, two, three, four, in that second chamber. And that's to quantify any air leaks. You'll see any bubbling in those chambers.
0: And this is where you would look for titling, right?
1: Yeah, so based on what your thoracic pressure is, that's when you'll see sort of titling this atrium. So if you are not ventilated and you take a deep breath in, you'll have a negative pressure in your thoracic cavity. So you'll see the float ball go up. And actually, if you are on water seal, you can quantify the pressure by just using the level of the float ball. So the pressure in your thoracic cavity, if you are not intubated, is the negative sum of the level of the float ball and you'll actually notice on the atrium the float ball has a release valve so you can only get so much negative pressure in your thoracic cavity and the reason they do that is if you do a lot of milking or stripping of the chest tube you can actually compound the negative pressure in the thoracic cavity which can be disastrous. So there is a release valve that only lets up to I think on that atrium it's negative 20 centimeters of water for a negative pressure in the thoracic cavity. If you are on suction you have the negative 20 of the suction plus whatever the float ball level is at and that would be the, the pressure in your thoracic cavity. And then the third chamber is different depending if you're using wet or dry suction. So on the dry suction, the third chamber has a regulator. You'll see on the top left of the atrium, it's usually set to negative 20. That will use system and atmospheric air to make sure that you never get a suction pressure above negative 20. You should have the suction on the wall set to 80 mmHg of suction as well. That's something that the guidelines for this atrium system recommend, so we should be aware of that. And then for the wet suction, you have to fill this chamber to a certain level of water. And this kind of resistance through the water to suction is what regulates the amount of suction that can be applied to the system.
0: So I guess my question which comes up a lot, stab to the chest, hemopneumothorax, you place a chest tube. Are you always putting that chest tube to wall suction or is water seal sufficient?
1: Yeah, I think that if you think there's a tear in the parenchyma that is large enough to cause a significant air leak, you do want to put that to suction. There is some data saying that air leaks seal without suction, but if you have a stab wound and you really think there's a large chair, I myself would put that to suction until I see the improvement in that air
0: leak. Yeah, and I think that's pretty much the practice you're going to see, especially in our institution across our departments, emergency general surgery and trauma, uh, to put those chest tubes to to wall suction.
1: And obviously pattern's different based on your mechanism, which means it it differs based on what specialty you have. You know, we put occlusive dressings on all our chest tubes, but that doesn't mean that every specialty, you know, there's lots of thoracic surgeons that don't put the occlusive dressing on. It's never been shown to really prevent any harm or really cause an effect in the outcome of patients. So I I think it's depending on who you're dealing with and just your personal practice.
0: All right. We've placed a chest tube. We talked about the differences between pigtail catheters and standard chest tubes. We talked about the difference between water seal and suction. When you're getting ready to remove a chest tube, the lung is up, the patient looks good, there's output that is appropriate. I guess we should say something about that, right? What output is appropriate? What output is appropriate to (laughs) consider pulling a chest tube?
1: Again, I think every practice is different. Generally, less than 200, 300 cc's a day is probably appropriate for removal. Remember, your thoracic cavity produces fluid just like every cavity in your body. And again, just like we talked about with quantifying hemothorax, we want to talk about this the same with quantifying output from a chest tube. If your chest tube puts out less than 100 a day, fine, it's probably ready to come out. If you put more than, say, 700 a day, it's probably not ready to come out. But if you had someone who was putting out five cc's a day for two days and then when you go to remove it you find out I've put out 300 cc's you probably just want to wait and figure out why there was a sudden increase in the output so I don't think it's just a number I think it's trending the output as well
0: and so is there any particular technique I think the debate about pulling a chest tube on inspiration versus (laughs) expiration is like a debate as old as time (laughs) and there's literature to support either one but yeah I'd love to hear your process
1: yeah I think educating the patient is probably the most important thing your patient needs to know what they are supposed to do when pulling the chest tube otherwise it's going to go disastrous whether you're on inspiration or expiration i like the patient to exhale completely so that there's a positive pressure in the thoracic cavity and that way air sort of tends to leak out rather than in when i'm pulling some people argue that if you have a patient expire fully they may gasp and then they're just inhaling as you pull the chest tube and sucking air in. A good trick I like to do is distract them. So have them practice a few times exhaling and then give them a job while you're pulling the tube. So I like to say, now bear down. So you have them practice exhaling, bearing down for a few seconds, release. Have them do that two or three times and then say, okay, I'm gonna pull the tube now and you pull it when they're focused on bearing down. Always have your dressing ready, that's another thing, is you don't wanna pull the tube and say, okay, let me get my dressing ready and have this sort of open wound sitting there while you're getting it ready, and then Whether you use an occlusive dressing or not is probably another big debate, but put your dressing on and always remember to properly dispose of your chest tube.
0: When you take the tube out, I know this is a question that comes up sometimes from the student end. You give them the patient their discharge paperwork and send them out the door after you pull the (laughs) chest tube. Our practice here is like a post-pull film at four hours, but that might not be the same across all institutions across the country. Yeah. I don't know if that was the same way you trained
1: So you wanna make sure that your lung is up and that your lung stays up. So I think an important part of this is watching the patient clinically, plus or minus any radiographic imaging. So you wanna see if the patient has any signs of shortness of breath, respiratory distress, tachypnea. A lot of places will get a post-pull x-ray in about four hours, not every place. Depends on why you had the pneumothorax, how your chest tube journey went, and other factors, other clinical factors. But you wanna make sure your patient is safe before they're discharged so i would recommend at least observing them clinically plus or minus any radiographic imaging Um, and then there's other educational points they need to know about i like an occlusive dressing personally i have that stay on for about two days then i have them take it off you need to tell them hey you have an occlusive dressing and if it's waterproof fine they can shower if not wait until the occlusive dressing comes off to wet the area based on their activity, are they flying somewhere recently? Or are they gonna go climb Mount Everest the next day? So just educate them on heights, educate them on hygiene, educate them on repeat signs, You know, depending on why they got a pneumothorax. Is this a thoracic patient, not a trauma? Did they have a bleb disease? Is there more information we need to gain? So just keeping them informed of the pathophysiology of how they got it, why they got it, what to look out for for repeat incidences is always important.
0: I think we went over a lot of important points, Jen. The paper you talked about, we can link to this podcast, the video chest tube placement that Behind the Knife did. We can link. I do want to just thank you for going over these concepts. I know sometimes they might seem basic to a resident or something, but especially for the students rotating through the department, especially those going on a thoracic service or on trauma, it's their first time managing a chest tube. So I think this discussion is going to be super helpful for them.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So thanks again to Dr. Jennifer Hubbard for joining us today and speaking about chest tube placement and management. We have a lot of great episodes that we're going to be publishing over the coming weeks. We're going to take a look into selecting colorectal surgery as a specialty, as well as preparing for a career in community general surgery. If there are specific topics and or specialties you'd like me to discuss in this podcast, my email is in the description, so just send me a quick note. Have a great week, and I'm looking forward to having you back with us in the next episode of the Brown Surgery Podcast.